Hey y'all, this is the fourth episode of the Southern Lodge podcast. Today, today the guys and I will be discussing a few white-tailed deer topics. These will include buck-to-doe ratios, how small is too small to shoot a doe, are state limits enough to manage bucks or should hunters be more proactive, and chronic wasting disease and what the first case in Mississippi means for hunters. So pull up a chair to the fire and welcome to the Southern Lodge. All right, guys, so uh, you know what we're going to be talking about today. It's pretty much a whitetail deer hunting heavy show. Uh, we're not going to get into sports too much today. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about herd management, uh, what's size of shooting deer, what our personal preferences are. I'm going to let Aaron uh, get this show going because he's our resident average outdoorsman. So, Aaron, why don't you take it off for us? You know what? Uh, remember when we were talking about the the average outdoorsman? I'm pretty sure that one's already been trademarked. So we're I think it was ordinary outdoorsman is what oh, we're going to be yes. able to go with. Yeah, and oh man, please, please don't sue us. Yes, <laughs> yeah, and we might want to get a trademark on the ordinary outdoorsman here soon. But uh, you know, a big topic right now. I'm going to start with chronic wasting disease. Uh, when this came out, the first case in Mississippi was uh, identified in October of, of 2017 in Issaquina County. And if it's in Mississippi, there's a chance that it could show up in other states uh, surrounding us here in the southeast. And, and that includes uh, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, any, anything. Uh, anything's open now because this is a communicable uh condition i don't know right. it, it's called a disease it moves like a virus it doesn't live like a virus though it's not a living thing so i don't even know i'm not a biologist so i can't tell you exactly what chronic wasting disease is but i know what its effect is on deer and i know that it can be transferred through feeding sources through bodily fluids uh and i know that the 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 particles that are or cause chronic wasting disease can can live or not live but i guess can can be dangerous for a long period of time so you might have an infected deer come to a food source with chronic wasting disease eat on it uh, that food source might sit there for a week or so another deer can come along and pick up those uh, particles that that cause the d disease and just for those who don't know Chronic wasting disease is fatal. It takes a long time to kill a deer. Uh, it, it, we already said it, how it's transferred. What it does, though, is eats at the brain of the deer. And it's, it's comparable to mad cow disease for cows. So the reason we want to talk about it, though, is because it brings up a lot of topics, and it opens up all these subtopics, too, that are relevant to deer hunting. And... Uh, I'm gonna pick. I'm gonna pick uh, Michael and Danny's brain here, and see just how dedicated they are to some ideologies, uh, you know, based on chronic wasting disease. So obviously, the goal with chronic wasting disease is to stop or slow the spread. Uh, it, it, there's there's no uh, vaccination. There's no cure. Once a, a deer is infected, uh, they they are going to die eventually from it if they're not shot first. So just like with mad cow disease, and mad cow disease did have a few cases. Again, I'm not a biologist, but there were a few cases with mad cow disease where the, the person who ate the diseased meat became infected, uh, and, and the similar effects happened to their body. So it, it brings up a topic, and here's the question that I'm asking I'm ask you, Mike, and I'm asking ask you, Danny. So with chronic wasting disease, there's only one confirmed case in Mississippi, but let's pretend. Let's pretend that any deer in Alabama or Mississippi, which is where we both primarily hunt, or we all primarily hunt, let's pretend that it's possible that any of those deer that we shoot could have chronic wasting disease. Are you going to eat the meat? If Are you going to send it off to get tested? Are you going to send it off to get tested? But even if you do, and it comes back positive with chronic wasting disease, are you going to eat it? Why or why not? 
Well, I think first off, if it doesn't, if it doesn't show symptoms of chronic wasting disease, I would probably eat it. Um, doing a little. Well, let me research. let me get into that. Let me get into that real quick. All right. There are no visible symptoms until about a month before the animal dies, and, and I'm, I might even be wrong with the timeline there. But it's it's not like once they're infected, you can look at one and tell because they could have chronic wasting disease and live for before they die. So you, there's a long period of time in there where they look like a normal deer. Hmm. So sorry to interrupt you. I, I just thought that was a good point to bring up. No, it is. Um, you know, I really don't know, considering Mississippi's just now, the states I hunt in don't have chronic wasting disease. There's a lot of research that I need to do, and I've done a little bit of it. Um, and like you mentioned, it seems to be spread. I think that's why in Texas it's such a big thing. And Danny, you know, Danny's the only one of us that has actually hunted in Texas and had to send a deer in. So I'm sure he could probably enlighten us a little bit more about the process. And uh, I don't know if he's seen any deer with, with the disease or not. But um, I think one thing that needs to happen is if, if there is a chance that this could be spreading to, to other states, then the wildlife managers or the state departments, the wildlife state departments in these southern states need to, they need to be proactive and get um, the the learning manuals out there and, and you know, the research out to people so they can be proactive and it's not, oh, I see a deer struggling and what is this or, you know, should I, you know, they should have the research and the information to make those decisions. But from just the small amount of research I've done, there's n- there really isn't a link to humans eating an infected deer's meat. Now, it's kind of the same thing with mad cow with the brain tissue being affected. Pretty much don't eat soft tissue. Brains, um, some of the internal organs, eyeballs, spinal cord, you know, marrow things. Um, but there's really not through my research at least, of eating meat and having an effect on humans. So I think if there's not really a research showing that it could affect me, as long as the animal is not about to keel over, you know, or, or showing too many symptoms of, of being just about to expire, I would feel safe eating the meat. What about you, Danny? Because I know, like I just mentioned, you've actually had to uh do the surveys and turn deer in to get checked for cwd i turned one in it was last year um i don't remember the particular county it was west of san antonio um buddy that i was with shot a deer um and this was the first time i had actually heard about cwd and i had not the slightest clue what the heck it even was um we had to either cut the head off bring the head up there or we had to bring the deer up their hole and they cut the head off because the only way to test to find out if the deer does con- you know, contain the CWD virus, I guess you would call it, um, you, you have to cut the head off and you have to test the brain tissue and then also some of the, one of the glands um, in order to, to see if they have it. Um, realistically, he, one of us may have already eaten one. You don't know. Um, I read it when I was doing a little research. I ran up and read a funny article. <laughs> and it was this particular guy. He's like, you know, if I hunt in a county that has CWD, it's CWD positive. I'm processing all my meat because I want to make sure that I'm eating my deer and not a CWD deer. Which is, is funny and humorous, but it, it very well could happen because that's always a big thing with processors. You don't know what you're eating. But, I, I mean, there's at this point in it, it's really early, and it's still so hard to, to tell if you actually do get contaminated meat. So I would probably would. I mean, if I saw one that was real mangy and something, uh, me personally, I would shoot it to get it out of the population. Um, but that's me because, I, you know, he wouldn't want uh, a mangy you know, crappy looking deer running around breeding with anything else, I'd probably take it down. Um, just like, you know, the way I've always hunted, you see any spikes, you usually take them down as well. 
All right, Aaron, I've me. got I've got a question for y'all. Aaron asked us a question, and just from you know the little bit I've done some reading on it, and like Aaron mentioned, uh, a lot of this is you know a deer eats a common food source, and then a deer comes along a couple of days later, eats out of the same food source, and can catch it. Um, I believe that's one of the reasons why Texas and some of these other states have the biggest problem is because they do they bait and there's a lot of high fence area which means the pools are stagnant and the deer can get in there but uh probably what saved the southern states so much is and i mean there have always been outlaws hunter that hunters that didn't follow the laws but you know up until recently as aaron has talked about on previous shows mississippi you haven't been allowed to bait deer with corn or any or an attractant we should say but um, and Aaron's kind of up in the air. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think he's up in the air about using corn as bait and the um, effects it has on deer harvest. But would you give up corn or baiting to uh, somewhat stem the tide of this disease if it, you know, if it is coming because of that? Or do you think that ground feeding is different than having a suspended feeder in the air spitting corn out at intervals? What do y'all think? So, Mike's right. I'm up in the air on uh, supplemental feeding through the use of baiting, uh, corn feeders and things like that. Let me tell you why. But first, I'm going to take a sip of Southern Lodge sweet tea. When I first started hunting, I was hunting here in South Mississippi, and I hunted in a club that allowed feeding, uh, saw a pile of does, heard and saw on camera that there were bucks in the broadcast uh, style, not, not corn piles, but a lot of people still put corn piles out anyway. Uh, Never saw a rack buck burn during daylight hours uh, at that club. And I hunted there for two years. Mike hunted with me a few times. Actually, the first rack buck I saw in South Mississippi was at that uh, 250 that we leased, Mike. So I went up to this club and joined a club in North Mississippi that's 4,600 acres. Does not, did not at the time allow feeders and baiting. And in my first season there, Missed a shot at a really good buck uh, for Mississippi. I'm going to say he was 16 inches wide. I don't even know what the Boone and Crockett score would have been. Definitely not like a 160-inch uh, class deer, but I'd have been proud to hang him on my wall. Missed him because I suck. Then uh, another day, uh, probably two days later, shot a racked buck, uh, a five-point legal Uh very very proud first buck ever shot but i shot him on a food plot no corn that experience in the first year of hunting there changed my views about feeding because i had used corn extensively at the other club now when our club a year ago brought this up to debate and vote on democratically uh, we had about 30 something people in attendance uh, talking about and debating whether we should allow feeding. My argument was it was going to draw in plenty of does and you'd have you'd be you could go out uh sit on a food plot and see all the does you want to see, but I didn't see any evidence that putting feeders out was going to attract bucks to the area. All right, Here so we are. You might be getting a little far off topic. Would you get rid of feeding to if that was would you get rid of corn feeding or baiting if that was helping spread CWD? I was I was making a really big circle and coming back. We were. To I was making sure we weren't in that triangle. <laughs> so I a year later had two hundred dollars less in my pocket from buying corn, and then another hundred and fifty dollars for buying a feeder, and I didn't kill a single deer over corn this year. Uh, saw deer over corn. Saw one buck in my food plot headed to the feeder, but not headed to the feeder. Does were headed to the feeder. He, he branched off and went to the woods. I say all that to say I would gladly give up feeding, but I would only do it if the whole club does it. Because if I'm not feeding, but other people are, 
then they're going to get the does that would have been coming to me, especially in my areas where my primary stands are. See, I, my opinion is I think it's just your area because I've hunted in uh, several areas, uh, other areas of Mississippi, uh, Brookhaven, which is above the Louisiana panhandle. I don't know if you call that panhandle, but the boot of Louisiana. And we constantly killed rack deer over corn piles. Uh, so I, I think it might be your area. It could also do with maybe the number of people in club stands y'all have. I don't know. It could be pressure. But I agree that, you know, corn has always been something to equalize what other what other hunters do. You know, corn has been that little extra something when everybody was planting planting their grasses and patches and beans and other leafy plants. Corn was that little something to push you over the edge. But I think if if this is a disease that could decimate the whitetail herds, which a lot of people enjoy, I, I don't know the amount of hunters in the country, but I know I know a lot of people hunt and enjoy that natural resource. And I think it's something that should heavily be looked into. That if if shared food sources are could be a cause of this disease, then we should look to eliminate it and start having harsher penalties on people that do bait with. A shared food source um but what i what i haven't seen in my research and it kind of surprised me was um and i don't livestock can't from my from what i've seen livestock can't like cows and other livestock can't catch it from a deer but if you have people that are feeding feeding livestock most time when someone feeds livestock they just put food out there and they let let the livestock eat at their own pace well, deer are still going to go eat on that, which is another communal food source that's not being used by hunters. So there's even if hunters quit doing it, there's still other ways that deer are going to eat communal food sources that are going to be around for a little while. So that's that's my take on it. What do you think, Danny? I, you know, based on what I've seen, I mean, the two, I guess the biggest state with it is what, Texas, right? Uh, let um, me look at the map real quick. You know, and Texas is notorious for, you know, feeding. I think feeding is a problem because I, I know that the way that they come in contact with this stuff is usually swapping saliva or bodily fluids or something to that nature. Um, so I absolutely, if that's, you know, if you have to do something to, to halt the process and, you know, attempt to get it under control and feeding is that, then I, I, I absolutely think that feeding needs to go away. Okay, so Alabama has not had any, you know, known issues with it at this point, and it's not legal to feed here. Okay, so I'm looking. It, it's at not legal to feed at all in Alabama. Not feeders, corn piles, anything like that. It's a funky law. It's not. So I'm pretty sure it's like Mississippi. I think it's a distance thing, isn't it, Danny? It has to. Like there's a big topic, and, and you you and you probably listened to that particular podcast that I listened to as well, the one I got you on. There was a guy who said that you could put a hay bale, eighty yards away, put the feeder behind the hay bale, and technically hunt it. And it well, and that's absolutely false. You can't do that. I think you can feed, but it has to be so many yards, and it has to be out of sight. I. I it's very rare to see a feeder around here. I've actually never hunted a place in Alabama with a feeder. I have not. So, you know, I haven't, don't know, to be honest with you. Okay, so there was a new bill tried to be passed last year. Uh, it went up for vote. I don't know if it's passed or not. But it did that not. Was, okay, so then it's going to stick to the old rules, and that apparently was you could not directly hunt over bait you had to be over 100 yards away and out of your line of sight so and 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 i think there was some some clarity on that that they said that you also cannot be hunting that general vicinity and i could be wrong with saying that but that particular podcast that we listened to they talked about that issue and how that law was kind of funky cuz it's very up to, I'm trying to think of the word I'm looking for here. Um, not necessarily debate, but interpretation. It is up to the particular 
person's interpretation of that law, and it's got some gray areas there. And I think that some of the rulings based from judges and whatnot have come down saying that you can't just stick a feeder and, you know, hunt close to it. It has to be, I think it has to be a way. Okay, so... But what I'm back pretty to- sure you can do is set up a feeder, though, establish travel routes for deer, and then a couple hundred yards away, a ridge away, a uh, creek bottom, whatever, then you hunt those travel routes, and it's totally legal. Right, and I, I think you're absolutely right with that. I think that is accurate. But there was a big discussion because they were somebody... Like, for example, put a hay bale and then put the feeder behind the hay bale. And it's like, oh, it's out of sight. And it would technically it is, but you're hunting over it. I don't care whatever way you look about it. You're still hunting over that bad boy. All right. So what Danny was asking earlier, areas with the biggest CWD uh, infection areas, um, cwdinfo.org gives you a little map. Uh, but basically it gives you two different color patterns, um, areas uh, with CWD-infected cervid populations and states where CWD has been found in captive populations, basically the whole state of Texas, Oklahoma, the Midwest, um, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, um, Missouri, those are all where it's been found in captive populations, but infected populations that I guess are not uh, captive, uh, you're looking at Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, um, Kansas, Nebraska, Wisconsin. Uh, There's a few hot spots in Missouri, one hot spot in Arkansas, one in Mississippi. Uh, there's, There's a few in Michigan. In the lower peninsula, um, a little bit in New York, a little bit in Pennsylvania. But the main thing, it seems to be uh, Midwest around the Rocky Mountains and the uh, Great Plains, and a little bit in a lot in New Mexico. But uh, it seems to be that the uh, captive populations are a little bit more su- uh, susceptible than, I guess, the wild, the wild populations are. I tell you what, if I go elk hunting in Colorado and the elk I shoot has CWD, I'm gonna be pissed. <laughs> you still gonna eat it? Luck. You bet your butt I will. <laughs> Yolo. <laughs> Give it a whirl. I'll feed you some too, Aaron and Mike. I'll feed both of you some. And I'll just I'll tell you. I don't know if we finished the round table on that question, but uh, to give my uh-huh. answer, I would I would eat the meat. I would take the chance and eat the meat. That's just me personally. I, I don't think, like Michael was saying, the research is not uh, heavily indicative that you're going to contract uh, the, the the disease yourself and die. And, and dad gummit, I work too friggin' hard to get that meat to to let it go to waste. I'm with you. I probably would be the same. I mean, it's one of those things that, like, you know, you could, you can catch cancer by eating wrong foods and stuff. Hell, what you don't know don't hurt you. But I would look at it. I I agree. Uh, but now that Mike we discussed just chicken fry it and they cook all the CWD off. Hey, they say boiling things kills off germs. Uh, grease is at least at 300 before I throw the deer meat in, so kill it all off. Heat heat does not kill the disease. It's uh, And I, I am not a scientist, but it's like, what's the uh, 600 degrees centigrade? I don't even know how hot that that's is. Like 12, that's, that's like 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit. That's what it takes to kill it. That much. So we got to melt. We got to so melt you're really iron. It, but you're destroying it. We got to yep. melt iron. Yep. I, I'm oh. gonna. I got to look this up because I got to put 600 degrees centigrade to Fahrenheit and just see what that is. <laughs> Looks like your uh, your chicken or your country fried deer meat is just not gonna work anymore. You're still gonna have the CWD. <laughs> it's still gonna be loaded with CWD. Might taste delicious. 
Mike's gonna grow another ear too. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, uh, you know, he could afford to to lose a little bit of brain activity. <laughs> it, you know, the funny hope, isn't doesn't don't the deer um, lose a bunch of weight by doing it? When they catch it, don't they get real mangy it, and real thin and stuff like that? That uh, everything that I've read and heard is that there's no physical signs that they have the disease until they're about to die. Like they're within they're within their last, and it may even be a week. Uh, that that's the only time that their behavior and appearance uh, gets gets strange. Interesting. So I, I don't know a lot about it. Like I said, when I went hunting last year in Texas, we rolled up and there was a trailer and you had to bring a deer that you shoot to that trailer to be tested. Um, and I was like, well, I, I was kind of dumbfounded by it because I'd never, I'd never heard of that before. Um, but it was very interesting, but I'll keep hunting my public lands in Alabama. All right. So 600 degrees Celsius is approximately 1100 degrees Fahrenheit. And at that temperature, we could, we could melt aluminum and that's what it takes to kill CWD. I, that little, a a little bit of oil is going to do it for me. I'm sorry. (laughs) the proper term is destroy because it's not actually alive but i've got a question i just thought of this let's say a deer dies of cwd and hopefully there's a biologist listening to the show that can email you michael and and answer this question a deer dies of cwd in the woods and a coyote comes and eats that deer Okay, digest some of the soft tissue and the CWD uh, particles matter. That coyote goes and takes a dump in the woods on a ryegrass plot. The ryegrass grows. uh, The deer eat that ryegrass. I wonder if the deer who eat that ryegrass that grew from coyote poop infected with CWD do those deer get CWD? But this is why you should kill coyotes. Well, I think then it becomes a question of how long is the disease slash virus viable for outside of a host? Because well, if you think about it, well, that's what well, you said. It acts like a virus, but it's the disease. What we're gonna okay the disease. However long the disease is viable, because you got to think from. It being ate, to it being digested, to it being broken down, to grass growing out of it is going to take months, maybe. I mean, can it live that long? The particles that cause CWD, because they're not living, but the the particles that cause CWD... I believe it's called a prion. A prion. Prion. Can bind well to clay. So what if the soil has a high clay content, the coyote takes a dump, the CWD particles get into the soil, the CWD particles bind well with the clay particles in the soil, ryegrass grows from it, it's possible. And you know what, that might be, that might be all it takes to start the spread, man. This, thinking about this and having this conversation reminds me of the movie Outbreak, and it kind of scares me a little bit. It's probably not that bad, and I'm probably exaggerating well, how bad if, it can be. If you want to see a more updated version of that, you should watch the movie Contagion, and it should scare the hell out of you. But that's for a different show and a different topic. Raw. It's going to be uh, a terrible show Walking for dead. yet another conversation and another episode. Uh, why don't we get over to something a little more sunny than killing off all our deer populations? And get on to uh, some some buck and doe management ideals we all have and what we think about them. Um, what what have you guys heard and what do y'all think are ideal buck to doe ratios? Uh, do you think that you should have a lot of does to your bucks? Do you think you should have a little bit of does? What what do y'all think, Aaron? I'm not gonna hide my opinion at all. Here in South Mississippi, 
people love to let does walk. They love it. They just want to they wanna go out and see 20, 30 does in an evening, and they'd rather do that than have the proper scientifically research-based proven ratio and be able to grow those big bucks. And the philosophy behind that is that if you got the does, when rut comes around, big old swanging, wide-racked buck is going to walk into your food plot and just take care of all them does and you're going to get to shoot him. The reality is rut is is a brief period out of the calendar year and that buck has to sustain his body for the rest of the year. And if there's 20 does feeding on that property, whatever you've got, however many acres, 50 acres for those 20 does, 100 acres, there's not gonna be much food source there for the buck. So the, the research is one-to-one. That's what you want. And I am a one-to-one man. I'd rather go out and not see a thing at all than see 20 does and never see bucks. So I, I want the right ratio, and I'm out, there, I'm out there to kill bucks, not necessarily monster bucks. I ain't gonna turn one down, but I'm out there for the experience and I want to have that experience as much as I can. So I want to kill a good buck. And, and I think I think that's the absolute best case scenario. Realistically, one to one is basically impossible, um, in my opinion. That's I think the one to one would be the most reasonable if it's a high fenced area and you absolutely know what the heck you got out there and everything, you know. The buck to doe population, you should shoot for one to one, but realistically, if you could keep it two to one, four to one, you're going to have a lot better deer as a whole because you're right. You're going to need to have ample food for the animals to feed on so they do stick around. Because if, if they don't have anything to eat, they're not going to stay. They're going to go somewhere where they can find food. I do believe that you should do your due diligence when it comes to shooting does because if you don't, then you'll run into a problem where you got 500 does and two deer, two bucks, and you're not going to have big bucks because there's just nothing to eat. You're right because they have to keep, they have to be healthy and they got to be hefty. You know, I mean, that's the big thing. So I think that you really do need to do your due diligence on shooting does, and obviously probably shooting the right the right does. Mike, but you also what do you run into. You also run into the issue of uh, with too many does, when rut rolls around, they may not all go into uh, they may not all go into heat. If you have that happen, that produces a uneventful rut, uh, which is, produces poor hunting conditions. And uh, you may not even have a noticeable rut, which is what I've experienced here in South Mississippi in a club that had 13 members, 1,100 acres, and uh, allowed one doe per member, and only about six or seven of us took our does. So, you know, let's say conservatively, we have four, four does per 100 acres. We're looking at 40, 50 does on that property. We're only harvesting five or six a year and probably producing in an offspring uh, another another 10 to 15 healthy doe yearlings we're not even we're not even keeping up halfway we're exponentially growing our does and not harvesting enough bucks to keep up with that right and it'll get out of control really quick i see where you're going i mean you everybody has to do the due diligence and they got to B, I mean, not everybody's a knowledgeable hunter enough to age and identify deer the way that they probably should because you want to take off the right ones, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But you're right. You're going to have to one doe a day or one doe per member for 11 members or 13 members for 1,100 acres is not realistic. I think you would want at least two or three, in my opinion. Well... I've been doing some of my own research and what I've found is the ideal ratio is anywhere from one and a half to two to one. So two does to one buck, one and a half. So you can't, so two does, one buck. 
Um, but you as we're all talking about, you know, nobody really knows unless you're dedicated to your camera and you really track, you know, like Aaron was saying, you need food to keep a deer in your area. And the more, if you keep a lot of does, that's a lot of food you're eating, especially when, um, especially in the early season when they're still, um, uh, what's the word? When they're still feeding their young, uh, you know, they have to eat food to produce the milk to provide sustenance for their young. And just on average, this is just an average, scientists, uh, biologists believe that deer have to eat um, seven pounds a day to stay to stay healthy. That's on average. So really, if a, if a hunter wants to provide a good area to that deer he needs to provide one deer just 2500 pounds of food in a year now there's natural stuff in the forest that deer naturally eat you know acorns and and some food but you know a lot of places that in mississippi in the south there's all these there's a lot of planted pine areas so the natural food kind of gets pushed out once they start clear cutting but um so you have to provide seven pounds a day for a deer to keep them in the area. And like Aaron and them said, the more deer you have, the, the less food you're going to have to provide that, that average that you need. But I agree, I agree with Aaron and them. You know, the two-to-one ratio is good, but you have to do your due diligence to know what's on your property. And also, it, it kind of matters what's around you because deer range i mean if you're on a small piece of land them deer that's that's when cameras become necessities because you can start to pattern a deer if it's been on camera a few times but um i think i think people don't take enough does because of antiquated thinking systems that and uh danny and aaron have already laid out of rut and everything else and they just think the more does the more i think they think like a man when they were when they were younger and they just wanted to be around as many hot girls as they could because they knew if you struck out with one you had another one right there to go after but also i've learned that biologists you know when we think when the when the common hunter thinks of buck to doe ratio they look at that button buck and they think, oh, that's a buck. Or if they see a fawn, you know, a female deer, a year, yearling, a halfling, whatever you want to call them, it's a doe. They automatically put that in the doe category. Category, But biologists don't count a deer's sex and count them towards the herd average until 18 months. Just because that's when deer kind of become able to live you know on their own and aren't going to be picked off by predators as easily because of the mortality rate in younger deer uh, they really don't count them until 18 months so really even if you see a doe say you're checking out your cameras early in the year and you see a doe with three fawns you can't and you may notice one of them looks like a boy you can't count that towards your deer herd because they could all three be technically could be dead if something happens to the mother and they can't fend for themselves. So, um, but, well, I think, uh, I think what people who want to save the does and have these like large population of does so that when they go out hunting, they get all this activity. What they don't understand is that you're really wanting to manage for the best rut hunts you can have. And if you're going out there, leaving all these does on your property, yeah, you're going to see deer every time you go. But what makes a good rut is when your bucks have to travel a lot. When your bucks have to cross land, they have to move through some acreage, that's what's going to give you, as a hunter, the best chance to see bucks and have shots at them. If you have a high density of does on your property, Mr. Buck doesn't have to travel very far to find him a hot doe. And he can stay on her for a while without ever leaving, just guessing, let's say he doesn't have to leave 50 acres. 
if he doesn't have to move to get all of the action that he wants to get, you're not going to see him as a hunter. But if you've got the proper ratio, then that buck is going to have to move around your property to get his fill of tender love and care. And that's what's going to increase your chance to have success as a hunter. Right. So I, you, you don't need 100 does on your property. You need one hot doe during rut. You need one, and that's what's going to get you some good rut hunting. That's a good point. You also need to manage your buck population as well because same thing with does. You don't want 100 does running around. You also don't want 100 cow horns running around or that three-point that will never be an eight-point or the curly Larry and Mo. So uh, that's another thing to look at when you're looking at your your buck to doe ratio you want to get bad genetics out of the herd a lot of people hate that because they don't want to take crappy deer because it's not a wall hanger but that is essential to managing your population by getting that out well it also leads into another topic we're going to talk about tonight is a lot of cull bucks that will never be anything else fall outside of state limits and um you know veteran hunters not i wouldn't say we're you know a hundred percent at it but most people that have been hunting for a long time can look at a deer and go and because they've seen enough of them and go oh the way that cow horn is it'll never be anything else or go that cow horn's got a five-year-old body it'll never be anything else but technically by state law you can't shoot it but it's still passing on bad genes every year to does and um, you know, that's not the topic we were going to discuss tonight, but I mean, it's, I guess we can supplementally talk about it, but, um, you know, a lot of people the, to me, the goal of deer hunting is yes, I like, I like to hunt deer because I like to eat them. I like the way they taste, but I also want to, I want to put that one up on the wall and show it off. And I like to have me a nice traditional big eight, 10, 12 point up on the wall but game laws the way they are or state laws you can you can legally shoot something that you really shouldn't be that proud of unless you're eight um i don't know i i really think state laws should be tougher or they need or they should add in call call bucks into state law but then again uh that's another thing to police. I ju- I think state law should be a little stricter on the bucks that are taken, just to, uh, just so you have something that you're proud to shoot, and you're not shooting a small little seven point, and going, oh, it's in state limit. But I mean, really, you really shouldn't have shot it. What What do you think, Aaron? <sighs> I think I'm going to disagree with you here. Uh, there, there's a strong counter argument, and I can't remember if it was Mississippi State University who published this article, but uh, you know they're real big into white-tailed deer research. Poor antler expression can be the result of genetics or poor nutrition. So to shoot a coal buck, a quote-unquote coal buck, under the assumption that his genetics are bad. I, I don't know, man. We had one deer. We had one deer that I'm convinced would have never uh, shown desirable antler expression, and that was on the 250 we leased. We had Old Stumpy. And uh, Old Stumpy, for uh, our, our listeners, was this very large-bodied deer. We caught him on camera. He was nocturnal. He looked to be about 200 uh, he, pounds. <laughs> he he was fat as hell. Uh, he would only come to the corn at night on our uh, on our cameras, and uh, he would, I swear, he'd mock us. He'd look at our cameras and just kind of smile, you know, uh, big toothy grin. But he had these uh, broken off antler, what are those called, the... the uh, nubs nodule module yeah nodule i think it, i think it's a nodule but it was it, they were broken off i mean they didn't have anything there it was like maybe he grew some really splintery 
just fragile, brittle horns, and they broke off in a fight early in the year, and he just didn't even care about it because the corn was there. And uh, we were taking his picture every night. But uh, I don't really believe in, in quote-unquote coal bucks in the sense of spikes and cow horns. When you get to, when you get to their uh, obviously three-and-a-half, four-and-a-half years old, and they just have really poor, thin, pencil-thin pencil horns, uh, not typical, uh, you know, three on one side, three on the other, uh, it, it's time to take them out of the herd. But spikes and cow horns, I don't know that there's any evidence that, that they're not going to eventually show some desirable antler expression. Danny, do you have any thoughts on the subject? I mean, I've always been taught that if you see a coal buck that shoot it um i thought that was part of your tags that you get is you can take a coal buck never in In mississippi in texas it is i know that's for sure um well texas may be smarter than the rest of us then I think it, it's something I'd have to look at my tags. I don't have them with me in front of me right now, but I could look at them at some point. Maybe when we get moving along, I'll go grab them. I think they're in my wallet, but I'm a big proponent of it because you want to keep a good, healthy genetics of a herd in your, you know, that you're seeing. And you want, I mean, it comes back to you want to have the best opportunity for big antlered bucks. And that's how you're going to do it, is you're really going to you know manage the population correctly right um and aaron i don't think you answered my full question you you answered the coal buck question but should state limits be stricter should should the minimum be raised because we're all out there trying to go for the big buck and if you keep shooting deer that are two or three years old or or younger you'll never get it I mean, I'm going to jump in on that, and I and I kind of disagree that everybody's going for the big buck. And oh, there's so many people that are going out there. The first thing that moves, they're shooting it. And I think as the hunt, as a hunting community, everybody needs to be a little bit better about identifying what is a shootable animal, and you know that's not going to get any bigger. I mean, sure, everybody makes mistakes and shoots a two or three year old deer but he's a big deer you know but you should realistically be going for the five or six year old deer that's way past its prime and it's definitely not going to get any bigger and if you did a little bit more research on that size then you would be able to identify you you know but couldn't that be solved by what we were talking about earlier is people go out there and shoot something because probably one they like to shoot things and two because they want to eat it um and also the trophy aspect but if people were more educated and they started shooting more does then because everybody goes out and they want to shoot a buck you know because everybody has got in their head that does are bad even though for the first eight years that i hunted the first deer i shot every year was a doe just to put meat in the freezer um but if people were educated better and taught what the proper ratios probably should be then hunters could go out and shoot some more does and have more have more meat in the freezer and then they could be more selective with the proper bucks that they should be shooting instead of going out and shooting that small six point they shoot a nanny or a doe and then they let that that small six walk and next year it's uh it's an eight or let it walk again and it's a 10 and this also comes back to scouting your land that you're hunting and making sure you know what the heck your population is you know doing a little bit more research in the spring and seeing how much stuff you got on camera you know depending on if you're a landowner or an Aaron situation he you know he's part of a club you know he's i he's I'm willing to bet that he goes out there, he's got cameras out, and he's looking to see what exactly is out there. So he's identifying what is exactly coming through. So he has a good, a better idea of, okay, well, I've had 30 or 40 does run through here, and we need to take some of these off rather than, you know, not doing anything. And you have no idea what your population is. That could be your only couple does that you got. All right. I, yeah, uh, 
I have no interest to to attempt to manage our club based on what I shoot alone. Uh, now Mike and I on the 250, we could have we could have done some micromanaging there, but even 250 acres is pretty tough to manage without a high fence. Back to the uh, the the doe discussion. You talk to, let's say in Mississippi, you you poll ten random hunters, and you ask them what their primary target is when they go out in the woods. Ten out of ten are going to say they want to shoot a good buck. I'm confident in that. Nobody's going to say, I want to shoot, I want to see a lot of does, I want to shoot some does, I want to shoot a little piss-poor buck. Nobody's going to say that. They're going to say they want to shoot a good buck. So the basic logic of getting to a good buck is, number one, got to have the food there to grow them, and number two, you got to give them the time to express the antler potential that you find desirable. So if you're if you're shooting little small baby bucks, you're not giving them the time to express that antler potential. If you're keeping too many does on your property, you're not giving them the food source to get to the age or to stay on your property to express that antler potential. In our club, we have a small issue of guys shooting button bucks or spikes. And we have a penalty. It's a $100 bill if you shoot an illegal buck. Uh, in Mississippi, in the part of area, uh, the part of Mississippi that we hunt, it's a 10-inch widespread or a 13-inch main beam. I'm in favor of moving to a 12-inch widespread or a 15-inch main beam. What that's going to do, in my opinion, is move deer into that next age class. So uh, a deer with a 10-inch wide spread, if he's healthy and great genetics, had plenty of nutrients, he could be a year and a half uh, old. If you move into that 12-inch spread, 15-inch main beam, it gives us a great chance of getting our deer into that two-and-a-half-year-old age class. Did that answer the question? I think that, I think I did. You did. Well, yeah, well, I mean, you answered it for your club, but do you think the state should – should up its limit as well do you think it should be mandatory that you have to shoot bigger bigger bucks because i know when i was growing up it was four point or better and then they switched to the inside spread or main being linked but should do you think the state should go to six or better or you know something something big like 14 or 15 inside spread so the cutting edge of deer management is aging on the hoof and shooting deer that are either three and a half or four and a half and older. And the reason for that is that they show over 80% of what their maximum antler potential is going to be. Without, and you just talked about education, but without educating people on what a three and a half and a four and a half year old buck or older looks like, what the the uh the neck and chest area mainly look like on those bucks even moving to uh points or spread uh minimums those aren't going to do any good uh we we the, the ultimate goal of anything with buck management is getting your deer to that maximum expression and uh I personally am a mix between a meat hunter and a trophy hunter. I'm not going to shy away from shooting a good buck, and if I got the opportunity to, you bet your ass I'm going to. But at the same time, when I go into the woods, I want to see deer that I can shoot, and I want to have the freedom to shoot those deer. I'm not going to. I'm not going to shoot them all, but I do want to have those options. I, I agree. I'm with you. I'm with. I agree with what you're saying. I mean, we've we're also kind of going into our next topic with, you know, really shooting smaller does or smaller bucks as well. You know, we kind of started diving into that. I'm a big proponent of aging deer. You know, doing your best to absolutely shoot the deer that need to be shot rather than shooting. Right. Small deer, you know, and right. it kind of goes back to, you know, your management of your land and, you know, trying to keep your, getting your population under control. 
you don't want to shoot does that are still producing. You want to shoot the older does that are you know aren't gonna to drop any fawns. You know. Well, you know, I I, I think you got to treat it. You know, and I don't want to get controversial or anything, but you know, until recently, and that's only because human medicine has gotten better. But technically, once once a female reached, you know, sexual maturity, that was the time when they were supposed to start having kids. And then as the older you got, the higher your risk while having pregnancy was. And, you know, they always say dog years are seven to one, which, you know, probably isn't true. But, you know, dogs only live a, a short, live a shorter amount of time than humans. Deer are kind of the same way. You know, deer are going to only live and nature they never hit their max life just because of predators and people and natural you know natural objects that are in their way but you you know probably a deer if he lived to be eight to ten years old is a very long lifetime at the same time if a female doe if i say a female doe a doe is a female if a doe made it to ten years old would they still be in a in an ability to reproduce successfully and not have problems with either the fawns or being able to care for them you know uh, so really the question is and I'm uh, I should do some more research on it but at what age does a doe quit becoming useful sexually um but because then I think it goes to, in people, the younger a mother is, normally the easier a pregnancy is, normally the easier a birth is, normally the easier of caring for her young is. And as they grow older, complications start setting in. So really, you should probably, in my opinion, you shouldn't shoot deer that are younger than two because I believe deer reach sexual maturity around the uh, the second year so and honestly you probably shouldn't shoot a doe until it's probably four or five let it get its best years out you know most of the time an animal the first year is its hardest and then after that because they're learning it the first year is the hardest and then after that it becomes easier until they start reaching ages where just the body starts breaking down so probably you should not shoot younger does i know everybody says you know that mature nanny you need to let it walk because it's gonna but honestly an older deer is something you need to shoot instead of the younger ones because the younger ones are gonna produce easier for you what do you what do y'all think of that i think it depends on what state your property is in if your population is healthy and you just need to bring numbers down, it probably doesn't matter. You just need to shoot does. If you need to if you need to bring the population up, you need to shoot the yearlings. Because the you don't need what you don't need to shoot is the mamas that have two fawns with them. Uh, even a fawn even one fawn. If that fawn is evidence that the mother is a successful mother and that she has raised that uh, offspring to, uh, I don't know, whatever it is when hunting season comes around, six, six months old. Uh, if you're just trying to, if you're just trying to manage for population, you need to take out the babies. Uh, the young so ones. <clears throat> if that, and I have a question for you then. When you see a doe with fawns, in the perfect scenario, do you shoot her? Do they still have spots? I shot on them? one. That... You so you shoot what you shoot a doe when they have fawns with them. It depends how I old shot they one are. This year, I say I don't. I don't. I, and the reason I did this year. I don't really. I'm not heavily invested in managing our club land. Okay, I'm going to hunt by state laws. Uh, state laws is 10 inches wide, 13-inch main beam. But for the club, I'm not going to shoot a buck unless he's at least 12 inches wide 
And the way to estimate that is when the ears are in the alert position, the outside edges of his antlers meet the outside tips of his ears. I'm not going to shoot a buck unless he meets that requirement. But does, I think we're healthy on does. I think we're fine. I don't want to shoot a button buck or a spike by accident. Well, how do you do that? You find a mama doe, you see her yearling. Just like Mike said, you confirm there's no spots on that yearling, and you take out the mama doe. So and if that's, it's brown, that's it's down. Me, if I'm doe hunting, and I only killed <laughs> one this year. I killed, I killed a doe, killed a doe, and I killed a buck that was 12 inches wide. I killed a doe and a buck this year as well. See, so everything really comes down to what your management style is. And if you want to take, if you want to have a good ratio or if you want to, you know, it it all depends on what your ratio you want is. But I'm going to just solely base, okay, let's, let's take everything else out with our ratios. Do we like a lot of does? Do we not like a lot of does? what are your what are your thoughts on does themselves older younger should there be should there be an age limit should you know as soon as it ain't got no spots on it you shoot it uh what do you, i mean what just on does by themselves i'm not sure i understand the question okay so i think w- the way we're discussing this topic is we're all, you know, you think you have too many does on your club land, so brown it's down. And then we all agree that people don't shoot enough does because um, we as- ascribe to the one-to-one or two-to-one ratio and not enough people shoot does because, as you said, people like to see like to see activity when they go hunting, so they leave the does and they also think... But if it's just if all that stuff is static and it's it's white it's white fuzz out in the universe, and you're just looking at a doe to kill, you're not worried about a ratio, you're not worried about anything else. How small is too small, and should you shoot an older one over a younger one? Not not thinking about the noise of a ratio or anything else, and your management style. This might get into an ethical discussion about shooting baby deer. If I'm going to hang one up and clean it, I want it to be as big as I can get. So that's why I'm shooting the mamas, uh, especially at the time in the season for Mississippi where I'm hunting, where these these are going to be six-month-old, seven-month-old fawns. They're, they're going to be able to defend themselves and, they're going to be able to survive. I'm not shooting a mom of a, fo- a spotted fawn. But if I'm going to hang one up, I want her to be 120 pounds. And for us, that's a good-sized doe. Danny? I mean, <clears throat> I don't shoot does when they have fawns with them. <clears throat> Excuse me. I, but I am with you. If I'm going to shoot a doe, I want it to be the biggest doe that I see. And... I, I'm with it, it is definitely an ethical decision you know I, I always go for the most mature oldest animals that I see and you know try to make my shot based on what I that's what I'm seeing that's what I do um, I know everybody's a little different some people are a little bit more trigger happy some people are even more diligent about it than I am um, I've been fortunate to shoot some pretty good deer that you know I've passed on others and that's what got me I don't just shoot everything that walks. I try to be patient. Those that are trigger happy are the ones that are killed in button bucks and spikes by accident when they're trying to shoot does. Yes, sir, they are. And it's it's going to come down to like, I don't know how you guys do it, but when I'm out hunting, I usually have my rifle really close. I mean, I have it up and ready and ready to go, but I also have binoculars as well. And I usually bino things before I ever get ready to shoot. But that's me. I don't know how y'all are doing That's my way of really taking a good look at the animal before I take a shot at it. 
my uh, my binocular skills are not up there. I have what they call shaky hand syndrome, and when I try to put binoculars up, they they wobble all over the place. So I normally like to just slide that rifle out the window and put that scope on a deer, and that way I know it's nice and steady. And if it is a shooter, I can just go ahead and clip that safety off and pull the trigger. But that that I don't carry binoculars. I just carry I carry a scope on my weapon, and that's good enough for me to check out what's in the patch. But uh, I think we're coming to the end of this episode. Um, I really think the one th- the 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 common theme throughout this episode was management, research. People need to be educated on what new thinking is out there on deer. And there's always going to be those old timers that I'm going to do what I want. And, you know, this is the way I've done it forever. And we always do this and that. And those are the same people that are out there running dogs or they're out there shooting over moonlight corn. And, you know, they're just not going to follow the rules no matter what it is, even if it benefits them. But I think uh, if people just become better educated, you know, like like we've done uh, we've gone out and done research ourselves because we we want to shoot bigger deer, we want to shoot healthier deer. Um, I think that'll that would help out a lot. Um, uh, so, on our next episode, I think we're gonna do. We're finally gonna get to those movies. We're gonna look at different sports categories. We're gonna line up our favorite movies through those and just see see what we have from childhood and see where people differ we're probably going to get into some whitetail feeding uh during the season and the off season because as we discussed today deer need to eat seven pounds of food a day to stay healthy and if you ain't giving it to them someone else will uh so we'll talk about seasonal feeding of whitetail and some movies and maybe some sports in there. We'll see what's coming up. Me and Danny probably need to talk about the draft and just see all the shockers that went in there. Uh, Mason Rudolph did not go number three. Yes. If you Damn. if you listen to our mockumentary, uh, Mason Rudolph did not go number three. Big shocker. Aaron bet the farm <laughs> on it. Um but that's going to be it from us at the Lodge. We'll see you all next time.